Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. What was podcasting like before the iPhone? Jesse Thorne knows. After college radio, Thorne, host of public radio's Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, broadcast his podcast, The Sound of Young America, from his home, eventually building his own podcast network at Maximum Fun, which now includes Stop Podcasting Yourself, Judge John Hodgman, My Brother, My Brother and Me, and dozens more. Thorne sat down with me to talk about those early years and the struggles that came with it, the power of building your own community, adapting podcasts for TV and streaming platforms, and even some fun stories about the role Thorne played in the launch of Mark Maron's podcast, as well as working with a then-unknown Jonathan Van Ness. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! <laughs> we're we're in a brave new world, Jesse Thorne. I know. Um, last things first. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I can't believe it's been uh, this long for me to have you on my podcast. You had me on your podcast, and I have this lovely shirt to show for it. Yeah, proof, proof positive. <laughs> so, uh, first off, let me congratulate you on another successful uh, Maximum Fun fundraising campaign. Thank you. Um, how many, how many, you have more than like 21,000 members at this point? That was 21,000 new members. New members. Uh, I don't know what the latest total count is, but, uh, it's a lot (laughs) more than it used to be. Let's put it that way. Well, I mean, having, having 21 faithful supporters is, is something at this point. Yeah, there was a time when that was my aspiration. I mean, like literally I started podcasting my my theory in my head. Like I had a concrete theory in my head in 2004 when I was 23, which was I had a sketch comedy group and I was like, we will literally rehearse for a week for a show at this theater called The Marsh in San Francisco with 70 seats in it. And I was like, if it takes me four hours to put together a podcast of my radio show, uh, it seems worth it if I could get 75 people to listen. You know? uh, well, so that also reminds me, let me also congratulate you on the fact that you've now, even though you're still relatively a young man, you're, you're a very young man to me. I'm, Thank a, you. I'm a generation Xer. So you are a very young man. Um, but you've even at this point, been broadcasting your life for longer than the period when you were not broadcasting. Wow. I had not thought of that. (laughs) Boy, that's weird. I had thought of that. I have been with my wife for longer than I was not with my wife that I had figured out, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, I'm 20 years in 21, somewhere around there and I just turned 40. So yeah, I just passed the tipping point. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> also, you know, you mentioned that you started turning the sound of Young America into a podcast in 2004. And so I'm curious for you to bring the listeners of 2021 back in time because we're talking through the magic of Zoom. And yes, just like, just like those other big time podcasters, I can record via Zoom and it's so simple now, but in 2004, what was the process like for a college radio vet like yourself to turn your show into a podcast? Well, Sean, it all started when I was going to graduate from college and I said to my then girlfriend, now wife, maybe I should stop doing the show when I graduate. It, it would be kind of weird. And she said, well, you're not doing anything else. (laughs) So that was the 
<laughs> that was the start. Um, yeah, I mean, like around right around then, I had been out of school for a minute, and my co-host Jordan, who I now do a comedy show called Jordan Jesse Go with, um, had graduated and moved down to LA to do show business stuff, and um, I was like. I was borrowing my mom's car to drive from San Francisco where I lived to Santa Cruz because my car wasn't good enough. And at some point I sold my car for like, I think it was $2,500. It was a 65 dart. Uh, I miss it dearly though. I can imagine that at some point, had I kept it at some point, I would have been impaled upon its steering wheel. Um, But I sold my dart and I bought, a mixer, an analog mixer. And I bought this thing called a telephone hybrid, which lets you, it basically separates on the telephone line, your voice from the person on the other end. Uh, because telephone lines normally are, are, uh, you hear yourself in the headset. It's, it's both people are on one track basically. So you need a machine that separates the tracks. And, um, I started recording in my apartment, like the guests were all on the phone at the time. And, um, and I just kind of one little step at a time did from there. I think I moved to LA in 2007. So a few years later, and for a while I would, (laughs) for a while I would, uh, (laughs) I would mail a CD to Santa Cruz of the show. (laughs) And then finally, uh, finally it was like, uh, oh yeah, we figured out how to download an MP3 file and put it on the CD for you. <laughs> you were like Netflix. You started by, by mailing it. Truly. Like that was it. like that, like those weird things were the big issues of my life at the time. One of the big ones was at the college radio station. There was no board operator. So, um, when we were doing the show live on the air, we ran the board. Like I ran the board. I was sat by the board and did the fades while we were talking. And um, you have to have somebody sitting at the board at all times when you're on the air legally because of, you know, emergency alerts and stuff like that. Oh, right. And so like one of the big challenges was when I was still on the college radio station, but living an hour and a half drive away was like, I had to be there. Like, even if I put the show on a CD, I had to drive to Santa Cruz, put it in the CD tray and press play and just sit there for an hour in case there was a tornado or whatever. Right. Otherwise it would, it would like the old VHS tapes. It would probably record right over it. Or something like the, the, uh, the big transition in my life was, Someone who was on the board of the local NPR station in Santa Cruz heard my show on KZSC, the college radio station, while they were driving around and suggested to the station manager that they listen to it. He did listen to it and um, put me on KUSP, which is a now defunct NPR station in Santa Cruz. And like the big transition wasn't a bigger audience or um, prestige or money. They did not pay me anything. I don't think, um, maybe they gave, they were giving me like, maybe they were giving me like $50 a month or something like that. Like they give me a check for $200 every, every quarter or something like that. But, um, uh, the big transition was that KUSP had a board operator. <laughs> and so I didn't have to drive to Santa Cruz to play the show anymore. You could just send the show to them. But that was a big, I mean, that was a big deal then. Yes, it was a very big deal because when I eventually got another car that I was still driving back and forth to Santa Cruz, it had a sunroof that leaked. So when it rained, which it does a lot in Santa Cruz, I'd be driving on the most like terrifying freeway in the world, the Highway 17 between Santa Cruz and San Jose, while just brown water dripped on my oh, face no. from, from the headliner. Not even clear water. It was brown water. It was so brown. I can't even tell you how brown this water was. I don't know what it was traveling through to get that color, but something brown is in the top of a car that really. If this were another type of show, I would dig. I would go in deep to 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 find out what kind of brown. This is journalism. This is not that kind of show. This is the kind of show where I I one want to. 
pat myself on the back because I'm, I'm grateful that I discovered you when you were still the sound of Young America and you were still broadcasting out of your apartment. I remember seeing those, those photos of you online and I was like, how does he even do that? Because <laughs> in the late aughts, that seems so beyond the, the capabilities of, of, of humanity. It seemed like you were sci-fi. Honestly, like the thing, the thing that I think was the most revolutionary about my show at the time. And I want to be clear that when I say the most revolutionary, I'm talking about it, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a very small group of very slightly revolutionary things. But the thing that was the most distinctive about my show was just in those days, so many podcasts were just talking about microphones or like, it was ham radio. Like it was basically just like, wouldn't it be neat if we connected to somebody, which is great. Like that's a really cool thing that podcasters still do. And I still think is fun and cool for those people. But the mere fact that I was trying to make a show show put me in the top 20 podcasters at the time, you know, in that, in that, in that very first month or year though, back in 2004, I'm trying to remember did iTunes even have a place for podcasts? Where no. So no. where did how did you get it out to people? A little app called iPodder. Okay. I mean, I like people were this was also before smartphones. So people were downloading desktop apps. The one called iPodder was the most popular, iPodder Lemon. And um it eventually had to change the name because uh of Apple. <laughs> Um, but basically it was an app that would look for these RSS feeds, download them to your desktop computer. Then you would put them into iTunes or whatever and manually, like I had a creative labs MP3 player and once a week or so I would drag shows on and drag shows off in windows. Like that was what podcasting was at the time. Wait, so you mentioned this app or this they probably weren't even called apps at the time, this program yeah. called iPodder. And so this blows my mind because I always just presumed or assumed that the word podcast came from Apple because of the iPod. But did the word podcast actually come because of this program? No. So the, the word podcast was a reference to iPods, okay. but it was, so it was not iPod. coined by Apple. Right. So people were manually, you know, at the time you, to put new music on your iPod, you connected it to your computer and used iTunes, right? And um, we were doing the same thing with MP3 files, but but iTunes didn't download the MP3 files until, I don't remember, 2006 or something. So um, for a long time, it was people with standalone desktop apps, downloading them to a folder, copying them into an iTunes folder, opening up iTunes, refreshing iTunes, then dragging them into their iPods or whatever. Right. And the first iPhone wasn't until 2007. So yeah. And it was years before, you know, there was enough expectation of, first of all, it was years before there was native um, podcasting software in iPhones. And then it was years before there was the expectation that you had enough data bandwidth to download files on your phone directly rather than downloading them at home and transferring them to your phone. So does that mean that in 2009, when you, uh, when you were in Southern California with a uh, then struggling Mark Marin, helping him to situate microphones and recording equipment in his garage, did you have any idea what was going to happen because of? No, I'm, of if that? I knew what was going to, if, if I knew he was going to completely destroy me in every <laughs> category, I probably wouldn't have helped. <laughs> was, was maximum fun a thing at that point? Yeah. Maximum fun was totally a thing. And um, I kind of knew Mark. I didn't know Mark really well, um, but he had been on my show a few times and um I certainly really admired his comedy. I mean, who doesn't? Um, a brilliant comedian. I've never seen anyone so consistently just um, 
uh, bring an audience to the point of just profound emotional discomfort and, and then force them to laugh through sheer force of talent, <laughs> like talent and skill. Um, but yeah, I mean, I knew him as a guy who'd been on my show sometimes. And like, I, I would go, my wife went to college in New York. So um, I, I would go see his like shows at the Luna Lounge or whatever. And um, when he moved to LA, I mean, he really was, I mean, he was a mess in general. Like he had, he had just gotten, the reason he moved to LA was because he had just gotten divorced. For the second time. Um, Yeah. And so uh, uh, like he had been recording in the, in at Air America from which he had been fired months earlier. (laughs) And so he and his producer, Brandon, I think the statute of limitations has expired on this. I don't think Air America even exists anymore. Uh, But he and his producer, Brandon, would just let themselves in. (laughs) Like they never deactivated their key cards. No, they've been open about that. So they're they're not. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So they would go record in there. And then um, uh, when he moved out to L.A., I mean, like I really, because he has been so kind in giving me credit, um, I, my role in this has been, has expanded in myth. Uh, I really just spent an afternoon with him telling him what microphones to buy and showing him how to use GarageBand. <laughs> like, but if you hadn't uh, done that. That's true. I mean, you know, the, the truth is that, um, you know, I think some people give give Mark less credit than he deserves, frankly, because he was the first to market with that kind of show. Um, I mean, I had a very similar show, but, uh, you know, I didn't have the the profile that he had. Um, but like the reason his show is successful is because he created something really remarkable. And that speaks to his like skill and talent. Like, he's such a remarkable performer and he really found in that venue, like a really special way to share that. Like I think of him being like in a lot of ways, like, um, like Ira Glass and it's no surprise that they're, that they're pals um, or at least uh, circle around each other Mm -hmm. because, you know, I've only met Ira in real life a few times. Um, but the one thing that has always struck me about Ira is when you talk to him, you know, when I talked to him and I was a total zero, like I was like a guy, I was a community radio guy, basically. And he was the guy who had inspired me to go into public radio. Um, and the whole time I was talking to him, he was asking me about me and my feelings. <laughs> And I was like, this is so real. Like, this is so actually who Ira is. He's, he really wants to know about other people's feelings, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why this American life is what it is. It's not because he invented editing techniques or something, though he did. And with Mark, it's the same. Like, Mark has a different kind of way in. You know, Mark almost challenges people to share their feelings. Like, it's almost like he'll kind of make assertions and see what they do. Um, Even more so in the beginning, because the beginning was more about his personal relationship to each of the guests. Yeah. But I mean, in general, like he will, even if he's interviewing, you know, Iggy Pop or whatever, he will kind of like try something. Like he'll be like, I bet this is because of this. (laughs) And it'll be like pretty, a pretty bold thing. And he might be wrong about it. But what's great about it is that the the result of that, because he's so sincere in that, like, it's not an act. Like, I don't mean to suggest that he's being tricky. Um, but like, the result of that is either the person agrees and expands upon a pretty bold assertion, or they kind of have to match his bold assertion with what actually happened, right? Because otherwise, this thing that wasn't what actually happened, or wasn't actually how they felt stands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have to be revelatory, like they have to show themselves to to counteract it, <laughs> so to speak. Anyway, my point in this is that is that uh, Mark is an amazingly uh, an amazingly brilliant guy, and um, I'm grateful to be a footnote in his history. So, for your history, though, at what point did you realize, or in fact, plan on expanding to become 
what has now become a network. Yeah. I didn't, I never planned on it. I've never had a five-year plan. I've never had a grand vision. But what happened, broadly speaking, is that my wife got into a better law school in Los Angeles than she did in the Bay Area. And, um, and I was thinking, look, I really am going to have to move to LA or New York because, you know, maybe I could be a local public radio host forever in San Francisco, which isn't a bad life, but it wasn't what I wanted to do necessarily. So I was like, I got to move to LA and be where show business is and see what that's about. And um, so we moved to LA and I just never got a job again. So I had a job in San Francisco right up till the day I left. Like right before I left, I went and got my teeth cleaned and uh, <laughs> like got a giant a prescription for gabapentin uh, to prevent my, for, to prevent migraines. I like said to the doctor, I was like, I only have health insurance for another week. So give, can you give me the biggest prescription you can? <laughs> Um, and I, I moved without a job. Um, and I had like a little consulting gig, which was my friends in the totally brilliant San Francisco sketch comedy group, Casper Hauser had a book coming out and they were like, can you help us produce some audio sketches and maybe do some publicity for the book? And I think they gave me, I think they, if I remember correctly, they offered me a thousand bucks a month for three months. And that was big money to me at the time. And I was like, I'm not going to get a job when I move to LA. I'm just going to figure something out. So uh, that was sort of the start of the network was just like, I'm not going to be able to sell ads. Not enough people are listening and nobody is buying podcast ads. They don't even know what podcasts are. Right, not and that so membership is the way to go. I'm just going to run this like a public radio station. And if I'm running it like a public radio station, I'm working full time. I'll just make as many shows as I can. And then the first show that I wasn't making personally uh, was Stop Podcasting Yourself. And that show is is still extant and wins the best comedy podcast award at the Canadian Comedy Awards every year. Um, and those guys were like hanging out in the forum for The Sound of Young America. And they had some fans there and I listened to the show. I was like, this is a really funny show. And I just figured well, I've already kind of built this infrastructure. They're not making any money for the same reasons I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I'll just loop them in on my stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it just kind of grew like that. Like there was never a, there was never a scheme. There was like some, some, I guess you would say like values, but never, a, never a particular goal other than not getting a job again. And, you know, to be clear, from 2003, when I graduated from college, to about 2010 or 12, I don't think I made more than $25,000 in any of those years. Most of those years, I was making twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, you know, and I just, you know, I, I, I grew up semi-poor and um, didn't have kids, <laughs> only had catastrophic health insurance. Mm. I, got, I got my migraine medicine from my mom who has migraines and she would just refill her prescription more <laughs> and send me some. And, uh, you know, my wife had some law school loans that helped. Um, you know, we just lived the two of us off of our whatever it was, $35,000 total, including the loans for that. Did, that. did that feel like a struggle or, or? Oh yeah, it was horrible. Well, I mean, it depends. I would say the like amount of money that we were making was actually fine because as I said, um, I didn't need much at the time, you know, like money wise, uh, I didn't need to support any kids. I didn't need to contribute to my parents. Um, and so that amount of money, like I w it was like, if we get together $3,000 a month, it'll be fine. Right. Like food's not that expensive. We're not eating out, you know, we're not drinking out, you know, the things that people spend money on, we weren't really spending money on, you know what I mean? Um, 
And so in that way, it was fine. I would say the hardest part was that it was entirely unclear that anything would change. So in a funny way, we had like, if I look back on it, like if I looked back on a graph of it, it would be almost completely linear, like year over year, making a little more money, having a little more audience, having a little more of an actual business, you know, but my show getting on a few more stations or moving up on the radio a little bit. But, you know, like the thing that I remember most vividly is when I first signed with Public Radio International, who no longer exist, but at the time were distributing Miss American Life and some other public radio shows, they sent me this projection, this five-year projection. So I had basically agreed to sign. I was like, yeah, I'll take whatever. And they sent me this five-year projection of number of stations picking up the show over five years and then my income from the radio over that time. Oh. And at the yes. end of five years, I was on a number of stations that I did not actually achieve <laughs> until like two years ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was, they had me getting on to 150 stations or something like that. And at the end of five years, the income from that was like $30,000. And I was like, how do public radio shows exist if you get on 150 stations and you get $30,000? That's like that's like half of one employee. <laughs> right. Like I'll work for that. But so it was that it was like the thing, the thing that got me down was not that I wasn't making that much money. It was more that I truly didn't know if the path, if there was a path ahead, because I was doing something that there wasn't really a model. There wasn't really an example to follow. There wasn't really, and there also wasn't like, there wasn't like people to like put me on, you know, like there wasn't people to say like, this guy's talented, let's give him a gig. Um, they're just, those people didn't exist. Like the closest to that in my, in my career is basically Hodgman, um, you know, who I do a show with now, like when he got famous, which was right after I met him. Um, Good timing. Yeah, exactly. He would like, you know, he would like send me an email and say like, Hey, I was talking to, they might be giants yesterday. You should have them on your show. Here's their email address. You know, like he's done that for me through his entire career since I've known him consistently, but mostly there wasn't even, that wasn't even available. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't even a, an no, option. I, no, I know exactly what you mean as someone who left a, uh, slowly declining mainstream media industry in a career as a newspaper reporter and decided in 2007, Oh, I'm just going to launch my own website. What could go wrong? <laughs> or I'll, I'll, I might struggle for three years, but then I'll get picked up by a huge website and things will go great. And here I am almost 15 years later, no, four, 14 years later, still doing the same little one man operation. I mean, I think often, right? So like 10 years ago or something, I started a menswear website and um, I was writing on the menswear website, making videos and stuff. I had a lot of jobs. This, was, was put, this was part of Put This On? Yeah. I still think of myself, Sean, frankly, as lazy. And it's just childhood trauma. I'm, I like think about it. I'm like, oh no, I'm not lazy. <laughs> I work very hard. <laughs> but anyway, I started this menswear website and... Um, it like really took off and like we were making good money from it and it still exists and is still a functioning business. But as you know, blogs barely exist anymore. Like that as a way of consuming content on the internet, just plummeted 80% or something. Right. And I'm I'm constantly live with the terror that some structural thing will change and then podcasts won't exist anymore <laughs> in the same way. Like I'm like, here I am, I'm on year five of being like by my standards, extraordinarily successful. Like what like more than I ever imagined. 
like things are going really well with the business. Like it's really good. We have great hosts. We're doing it the way we want to do it. All that stuff. Right. And all I have in my head is like Spotify is going to step on us and destroy us like a bug. Yeah. Now, I, will uh, that happen? I don't know. But like, it's like, you know, it, Facebook changes an algorithm and the entire news business closes. No, for me as a writer, I, it's been Substack that I've been looking at and going, oh, do I need to pivot? Do I need to scrap what I'm doing and be a Substack person now? Or Yeah, get over there with the, with the turfs. <laughs> <laughs> the Nazis on Substack. Well, and, and, the, and, and the and the people with entertaining perspectives on a particular sports team. <laughs> well, and you mentioned the changing, you know, technologies. At least two of the Maximum Fun podcasts did try to make a move to TV. There was throwing shade, and then there was my brother, my brother, and me. Yeah, I had a I had a San Diego America TV show. Um, we only made one episode, uh, and then the programming regime at the weird network we were making it for, which was called current TV, uh, changed. Oh, right. That was Al Gore's. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I have good word. I have a friend who was an editor there. I have good word that Al Gore watched an episode, watched the episode that we made while he was visiting the office one day. Um, but uh they ran that for years like they cut it into pieces and ran it in other shows oh wow without i think i made a total of like a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars from the t- from having a tv show <laughs> but you know i'll take what i can get yeah you probably yeah, got my, more, you probably got more from ifc than you did from current yeah i mean my brother my brother and me which is one uh one of our comedy shows got turned into a show for CISO. And I had I had dinner one time with uh, Evan, who was the boss of CISO. Pyro, yeah, yeah. And he he had actually been the boss of IFC when I hosted a show on IFC. And um, he's a, a good guy who likes good comedy. Like that was his whole deal at IFC was like let's acquire freaks and geeks and stuff. Um, and he told me of all the like comedy stuff that they made on CISO, you know. Um, Jonah Ray had a really funny sketch show. Um, Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher had a really good sitcom, um, sort of dramedy sitcom. Um, you know, they had an Upright Citizens Brigade TV show, they, all these different UCB things, all this different stuff that they were making. Plus, you know, they bought like Monty Python and the Kids in the Hall and stuff. No, it, it was, was like, a, it was a great platform that nobody watched. <laughs> Yeah, well, he would, here's the thing. So he said, if we had launched My Brother, My Brother and Me at the beginning, we might have survived because it was the only show that drove audience. Like it drove subscriptions. Oh, wow. Like, I can't remember what he told me, but it was like 100,000 subscriptions through the Mabim Bam codes and like 5,000 through all other codes. <laughs> and it just goes to show you like the depth of the depth of commitment that a podcast audience has, you know, like that's, that was sort of the lesson that I took from that was, you know, throwing shade. They are every bit as funny as the McElroy's. And I don't say that to slight either of them. They're all like Aaron and Brian are so funny um, and really smart. And they made a great show. I went out to the taping of their show and it was really funny. Um, But ultimately it's a different thing. And they were, you know, they were trying to make a regular TV show. They did a great job, but it was just, it was one of those things where it's like a weird TV network, you know, that's like, it's hard to, I mean, my friend Guy Branham had a really funny show oh, yeah. on, um, on true TV. And it was like true TV was going to be the new comedy central. That was their branding goal. But like the only show that popped for True TV was Impractical Jokers, which I've never seen, but I don't need to. And uh, and like now it's just all Impractical Jokers um, all the time on that network. But it's like at the time they were they were like, yeah, well, we're, we also have Billy Eichner and Guy Branham making the two gayest television shows in history. Right. And it's like I'm. I'm trying to imagine their like programming executives 
And I think what must have happened is their programming executives had great taste and were gay. And they're like, Billy Eichner and Guy Branham are two of the funniest people ever. Like they'll make amazing shows for us. And then just accidentally someone made Impractical Jokers and it was like the most successful cable television show well, since they, they also invented Adam house flipping. Yeah, Adam was on there. Yeah, totally. And Adam was was making like an Emmy level show. Like, like Adam ruins everything for folks who didn't see it. I think it's on Netflix or something. Uh, maybe it's, it's on, on HBO, HBO Max. HBO Max now, yeah, because yeah. Warner Brother, Warner Media. Yeah, like Adam Adam's show is one of the best nonfiction TV shows I've ever watched. It's genuinely funny and like brilliant at talking about things. And you know, here it is. It's on after Impractical Jokers. It's like, what are they? <laughs> Like TV is just so weird. Did 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 watching all of those experiences, mostly from afar, but a couple times very up close, did that um, change your intentions about how you might expand your own platform? Yeah, I mean, I think what what I wanted to do was make sure that the artists involved in Maximum Fun could continue to control their stuff. Um, because the greatest bummer for me of the sound of young America, the TV show was not that it, I thought it came like for the kind of thing that it was for that network that was, you know, spending $10,000 for half an hour of TV. Um, that was their business model. Like it was actually a thing that I thought was pretty neat. Um, like I thought it, it came out pretty well and, I don't mind making low stakes TV. That actually is the kind that appeals to me the most. Like the <laughs> scale of getting rich to me is more like you get to make a TV show than it is. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but the bummer part of it was like, well, we made that show and the guy who had ordered it six months before had gotten fired. And so by the time the pilot was done being cut, it was a different guy and he just decided to cut everything. Right. That was the same thing. Like I hosted a show for IFC for a minute that was a similar kind of low stakes comedy show, very cheap to make and pretty successful. Like it was making money for IFC. But basically what happened was um, Portlandia blew up and they only had a, they only had a one year deal for Portlandia. And so they just canceled their entire development slate and all of their existing shows to pay for more Portlandia. <laughs> instead of, instead of raising the budget. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just, it's business. Show that's business. how, that's how it works. Somebody gets a number from somebody and they have to stick to the number, you know, and rainbow media holdings isn't exactly uh, Sony Fox or whatever they're called, you know? So I, I knew that like, I knew that I wanted to make sure that people, you know, people have had very successful shows that started as Max Fun shows that left Max Fun. And to me, that's still a win. Like Jonathan Van Ness, I had to cancel his show because I lost a couple of, um, I lost a couple of producers at the same time and didn't have any money. And I was like, Jonathan, I just don't have the money to have somebody produce your show right now. And at the time he was just, Aaron Gibson's hairdresser <laughs> and <laughs> that we thought was amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, I've gotten 2,200 people to listen to this show and I can't, there's no business in 2,200 people. I can't see, I can't figure out how I'm going to get more people to listen, even though you're amazing. Um, unless you become famous or something, I don't know how we can do it. So we canceled, we had, we ended the show. I said, the show is yours. It belongs to you. Um, and then he got famous. And when he got famous, he started doing the show again and it became hugely popular, um, which is a bummer for Max Fun, obviously. I'd love to be making some of that money, but uh, I'm glad that Jonathan still had his show when he got famous and he got to do the show that he wanted to do, you know, because that was, you know, when I stopped doing The Sound of Young America, I was like, oh, when when that when that TV thing with the Sounding America didn't happen, I was like, "Oh, well, I guess I don't get to try and do TV shows based around the thing that I've been working on my whole life anymore." <laughs> you know, Ooh. I guess that's the end of that. You know, at the same time, though, I have to just remind you and remind like I, I have admired, appreciated, respected you so much 
because you have been able to maintain your aesthetic and your network, Maximum Fun, whether you've been a big part of the public radio mainstream community at large or whether you haven't been, you've still been able to do what you want to do. And one of my biggest regrets is that I've, I never was able to go to a Max Fun Con. So I hope you bring that back. We got one, we got one last one in the chamber, 2022. We had to cancel. We were going to do it last year and had to cancel it. And um, uh, just cause I got food poisoning as well. I mean, just, you know, um, nothing else was happening last year. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we're going to do, a, we're going to do one last, we're going to give it one last hurrah in 2022. Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things about owning your own stuff is that it really reduces your chances of blowing up because when you sell your thing to someone else, what you are getting is their expertise and investment, right? They're going to take a swing at making your business, making the business of you big, you know, they're going to, you know, you sign, you know, you sign um, uncle Murda to Rockefeller records and uncle Murda gets a million dollars or whatever. He gives up many of his rights to his own art (laughs) into the future. But what he also gets is he gets Rockefeller records is going to put $3 million into trying to make him famous, trying to make a big business around him. Right. And more often than not, not that fails. So for more people than not, it's actually a, it's actually a, like a good deal (laughs) because (laughs) if someone spent a bunch of money on you, and you didn't get famous, that means it was their money, not yours. <laughs> right. And then if you do get famous, like you're getting jobbed, like you're getting a bad portion of that, but it's a lot. It's a big pie. You're getting a too small piece of a big pie. You're still maybe are doing okay, right? So that's why you sell out. But the advantage to not selling out, and I can't say anybody ever brought me Uncle Murda money, Um <laughs> But like the advantage to not selling out is that if you are adding bricks, adding bricks to your building every year, 20 years in, you're like, look, I built a, I built a house and I can live in this now. You know, like I'm, I'm actually, after we do this, I'm going to have lunch with this guy named John Vanderslice, who is a singer songwriter. And, you know, Vanderslice is very beloved in indie rock circles, you know, but I'd be surprised if he's ever sold more than 50,000 copies of a record. Right. But he built his own label. He built his own recording studio. He does, he tours clubs, he does house concerts and he makes a pretty good living, you know, like he's not rich or anything, but like, you know, he lives here in LA, you know, and he can be a grown man. Um, and that ultimately is the, that ultimately is the advantage of doing this. And like in my business in podcasting, like it's so much about relationships. Like it's about your relationship with the audience over a long period of time. You know, I just went on Keith and the girl and Keith and Hemda have been doing that show as long as I have been podcasting, you know, we're sort of contemporaries and like, I don't know, do 500,000 people listen to their show? Probably not. I don't know what their audience numbers are, but if 50,000 listen, um, I mean, that's a living for them, you know? And they, they built that year over year over, over 15 years. And there those relationships with that audience are deep, you know, really means something to those people. And, uh, and you have, that same relationship with your fans as evidenced by another successful campaign. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's funny, like there's, there's been a lot of talk lately in podcasting world, especially nerd podcasting world about this word called parasocial, which means relationships that um, 
are perceived by one of the parties to be a human social relationship, but in fact are not, right? And it is often associated pejoratively with people's relationship with podcasters, right? It's also social media personalities, reality TV personalities, that kind of thing. Um, tabloid celebrities. Um, but with podcasters, because it's so personal, you know, podcasters, you feel like you have a bilateral relationship, even though you have a unilateral relationship. And I don't think that that is an incorrect assessment of the situation, right? Like, I do think that if 50,000 people or whatever listen to Jordan Jesse Go, um, I don't have a bilateral relationship with most of those people, even though I, I feel like I have a personal relationship with our audience. Like that means that I have a relationship with a hundred of them, maybe, you know, and that relationship is pretty weak on my end. Even, you know, it's like people that I see once a year at a show that I recognize, you know, right. They're not coming over for dinner. No. Um, and so those 49,900 people or whatever, yeah, their relationship is parasocial. But I think that if you are self-aware about that fact as an audience member, if you are aware that you, while you have this feeling of reciprocality, there's no way for a public person to have a genuinely reciprocal relationship with everyone in their audience because of the numbers just won't, will never match up. You know, I couldn't have had a, a reciprocal reciprocal relationship with everybody who watched my show on current TV. And that show didn't even make point one in the ratings, you know, <laughs> like they didn't have enough people watching it for it to count. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is still value in that. And like over the course of the pandemic, for example, I've, I've had a really, really brutal time family wise and um, not getting a divorce, just a, uh, a lot of trouble in my family. And, um, and like, I'm like, wow, my relationship with the hosts of my favorite baseball podcast um, is so important to me and so meaningful to me in this situation, even though like I'm a professional podcaster, I have talked to them on the phone once. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I've never seen them in real life. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't actually know these people. Right. Right. And there's such value in that. Like, that is what is really special about podcasting is you chose it. You chose it. And then the people are speaking directly to you. And that's different from the communal experience of going to see theater or a concert or whatever. Like those are two different things but it is a very valuable and meaningful thing for people. Um, And so of that, I feel proud that Maximum Fun takes seriously the stewardship of that relationship. And we can't, we can't be everyone's priest or therapist. You know, we can't be everyone's best friend. Um, and we can't even make something that agrees with everyone's values exactly, you know, but we can do our best to care for and be respectful of our audience as a whole um, and not be flippant about the relationship that they have with our work. Right. Like try and do something that. And again, like very imperfectly. And there's probably no perfect because perfect is different for every one of those 50,000 people. Right. But um, do our best to be respectful for and care for them, given that that is the nature of our business, that it is this almost social relationship. How, how much of that attitude has evolved or changed uh, as your journey as a parent has evolved and changed with, with dealing with your kids. Yeah. I I mean, you've been public about on social media and other places. Yeah. I would say it was definitely always the goal um, 
I mean, I knew from the beginning that we did not have a shot. Like I'm not famous and almost no one who's ever been involved in Max Fun has gotten involved when they were famous. <laughs> like Hodgman is probably the most famous person that has ever, you know, and he was famous from being in some TV commercials, basically. <laughs> um, I mean, he had successful books, you know? Right. Um, and so I knew that like, nurturing a community and trying to nurture interpersonal relationships and, and trying to build like multilateral relationships in our audience rather than unilateral or bilateral, like trying to get our audience to relate to each other um, was important. And that has always been a goal. I mean, that's why we do Max FunCon and so on and so forth. We want to do something that people feel like could be a piece of who they are in the same way what kind of church you go to is, I mean, without the stakes with lower stakes <laughs> or like, if you're like the, the thing that I always thought was like our ideal place to be in someone's life is like Harley Davidson. Like if you're a Harley person, you're a Harley person. You have something with other Harley people. Like it's different from preferring Coke over Pepsi. It's like a, it's like a meaningful part of who you are, even if it's a very small one. So more community, less salvation. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and over time, I think I have gotten more sensitive about what that means for people in our audience who are both more vulnerable and need it more. So, um, you know, in the early days of Jordan, Jesse go, we occasionally use the gay slur that starts with F. And we never used it like uh, with the proviso that I'm not copping, please here. I'm, I'm, I'm aware it was the wrong thing to do. And I've, and I apologize for it, but it was in the context of, it was never in the context of insulting a gay person or it was in the context of, of imagined, performative allyship, right? Like we thought this was, you know, our gay friends say have reclaimed this word and we get to be in on that. Sure. We were wrong about that. Right. And we just got a couple of nice notes from people in our audience who said, listen, I know you guys aren't homophobes. I, I know you're allies. This isn't a way like I, but even with that understanding, I feel hurt when I hear that word coming from somebody who isn't queer and um we were like okay let's take that on like onboard that thank you for the note you know like again we can't take care perfectly of everyone ever but like we heard that great and um within my three kids um my oldest is transgender and there's a lot of neurodiversity among my children that is still like being evaluated, but mm -hmm. um, there's plenty of it. Uh, a a surfeit, I would say <laughs> extra leftover at the end of each day. Right. What a blessing. Yeah. And um, you know, somebody, um, somebody messaged me a few weeks ago and said, I was listening to an old episode and you were, you were talking with your guest in a joking way about an autistic kid and I'm autistic and it really bummed me out. And, um, I was like, or, you know, we actually, um, on the sound of young America, which isn't even, you know, it's a show that's often about comedy, but not mostly a comedy show. I once played this second city sketch that the second city performed when I recorded a show at the second city, the then stage company. It's an Adam McKay sketch um, that involves the R word. Mm. And it's a brilliant sketch, like a genuine, like one of the most amazing, insightful, spectacular things Adam McKay ever wrote but it has that word in it. And I was, and I wanted to defend it. Cause I was like, this is not a joke about developmentally disabled people. Right. Like this is a joke. Like I wanted to give the intellectual, but what I understood was like, 
ultimately when you're in a room and there's 200 people in there and you make a joke about sexual assault, you're making that joke to 30 people or 40 people who have been sexually assaulted. And this isn't something that they can receive on the basis of your justification about why your joke about sexual assault is actually anti-sexual assault, even if that justification is totally right and totally makes sense, right? That is really going to be a kick in the reproductives for those people. It's going to trigger trauma that is really real. It's not sensitivity, blah, blah, blah. It is real trauma. And like, I grew up with a dad with PTSD and like, it's real. Um, and so over time we have worked hard to try and be inclusive and, you know, while I grew up lower middle class and, you know, righteous, you know, my father was a professional organizer. I'm still a cis hat white dude, right? Like <laughs> no matter, I still like I'm a college graduate and right. No matter what, never, what, what rap, Oakland rap credentials you might have. Exactly. Yeah. Or San Francisco rap credentials. Shout out right. to rap and Fote. <laughs> Shout out to the RBL posse. Um, Dre dog. I see you. Um, but uh, I have. In ha especially in. Both in hearing from and relating to people in our audience who are vulnerable in various ways. And in having people in my family who I love more than anything else and realizing how often I have to defend them from the world and how often the ways that I have to defend them from the world aren't related to malice. They're just related to inconsiderateness. Um, I have worked harder and harder to make sure that we are taking care of the audience as best we can. And again, when you have, you know, the adventure zones, whatever it is, half a million listeners or something, you can't take care of every one of those people one at a time because it's impossible. But what you can do, and if you set yourself up for that, you're going to lose and it's going to be ugly for you. Yeah, you can't cater to the one person out of a half million who's offended because you can't, but you can genuinely do your best. And when somebody gives you feedback, instead of saying, this is the biggest one, the one that was hardest for me and that I see is really hard, um, especially for folks who are newer to performing or being public figures, which a lot of our hosts are, when you get that feedback, you say, thank you. You don't say, fuck me, fuck you. <laughs> that is always your first response. I promise. Right. And if you're in comedy, it's your first response times a thousand, <laughs> right? You want to like, if, if, if my friend Al Madrigal gets feedback about something, his first reaction is to just destroy whoever it was. And he will do a great job of it. Right. But ultimately, like, we just try, we try and take care of people as best as we can. Well, Jesse, you've, uh, you've, you've done a remarkable job in, in doing that. And I'm not just saying that because you told me you're buying a house. Um, and if there's any more levity I can add at the end of this conversation, it's that at least you can take solace in knowing that uh, the best is yet to come for podcasting. I hear yeah. 2021 is the year that podcasts will go big. Yeah, here's here's <laughs> hoping. You know, I was thinking about the latest Jordan Jesse Go episode where uh, Jordan talked about going to goat yoga and one of the goat yogis, the human goat yogis, made a joke that her husband wanted to run away with one of the goats. And Jordan was like, I guess I'm not into blue humor now because that really creeped me out. <laughs> anyway, I was thinking that on Jordan, Jesse Go, we're glad to do humor about fucking goats. 
but we would never do humor about goat effers. <laughs> That's where we draw the line. <laughs> and even when we're talking, even when we're joking about goat fucking, we will say that it's wrong because the goat cannot give consent. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad to know that uh, I still have one last chance to uh, join the fun of Max Fun Con 2022. I will be sure to get in there before tickets sell out. Okay, I'm going to go get some enchiladas with John Vanderslice. All right, have fun. Later, Sean. Thank you. Later, thank you. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.